0: Hey everyone, we're back for another discussion about some of the big ideas that lie behind the books of the Bible. We're recording this episode remotely, Jim, because I'm still in England at the moment.
1: Yeah, you've been traveling quite a bit, Ollie. I mean, you sent
0: me some fascinating photos
1: of Ephesus uh, that you took on your vacation in Turkey. I was rather envious, of you I have to say.
0: Yeah, it was an amazing, amazing trip to Ephesus and Miletus, actually. Um, we had a really great time and it actually was fascinating just to get a sense of of the city that paul was ministering in a sense of the scale and the sophistication of it i'd highly recommend a trip uh, to anyone who's interested maybe we go on an equip podcast trip sometimes together sometime (laughs) together jim
1: (laughs) (laughs) well while you were away i was plotting an escape plan from the ridiculous questions you hurled at me at the start of these episodes I was preaching in a church in Fermanagh while you were away, and uh, a lady walked past me afterwards and uh, asked me why I wasn't wearing Crocs. <laughs> so, enough is enough, Ollie. I've I'm I'm, I'm decided I'm going to ambush you at the start of each episode, and what I've decided to do is to voice, is to voice an unpopular opinion about something and see how you react. Okay.
0: Now, i'm ready i'm ready hit me with it
1: okay well before before i do i need to check the pronunciation of a word what do you how do you pronounce the, the name of the piece of bread it was popular in new york it's circular as like a donut shaped
0: okay i would say bagel if that's the right thing
1: that that, that it sounds so much better in your mellifluous <laughs> english accent <laughs> I, I call it a bagel but anyway he, he, here is my unpopular opinion are, are you ready i'm
0: ready bagels are a stupid shape whoa jim that is that is actually deeply upsetting because bagels are one of my favorite items of food well i think let me make my case first of all you have to split them right
1: and, and that always goes wrong hmm. uh, so you, the the knife veers away and you end up with one massive half and the other uh, with a razor edge that you could you could shave with which always gets burnt but the real problem comes when you have to butter it uh, uh, and because of that stupid hole in the middle all the butter melts and runs through it, if you have to Butter a, a regular piece of toast. You can have a mechanised process; it's regular, repeatable. But it just does not work with a bagel.
0: <laughs> to be fair, like I do, I do hear you because when the bagel's hot, the butter does run through the middle, and if there's honey on it, which I've had, have a tendency to put honey on it, it makes a real mess. Having said that, to counter your unpopular opinion, which I think is very unpopular, and I think our listeners will be up in arms, to be honest. But have you ever tried a fried egg? In a bagel, because the yolk fits perfectly in that little hole, and it just works. Idea: you don't actually break the yolk until you actually bite into it. It's fantastic. I think that might change your opinion on whether or not it's in good shape. I have a too many bad experiences. Uh- <laughs> To have my opinion changed, forever, forever scarred. Well, that is that is a deeply unpopular opinion, and I look forward to more of the more of those opinions in the in the coming weeks, Jim. Uh, But today we're going to think a little bit about a book in the New Testament called Philippians, and it's a bit like the Gospel of John that we talked about in our last episode, Jim, because it's loved by so many Christians.
1: That is very true. Uh, People always react happily when they hear that we're starting a teaching series on Philippians. It's also a fantastic book to study in a home group because it engages so deeply with our our real lives.
0: Yeah, and at its most basic level, this little book is a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Philippi. And by this stage of his life, Paul has been imprisoned in Rome. And so he writes to this little church that he founded some years earlier from his prison cell in Rome. And the little church at Philippi, it started off in a fairly straightforward way. Paul and his colleague Silas felt called to the city, and things went well at first. A woman called Lydia and others converted to faith in Christ. But then we see things take a downward turn because Paul and Silas end up in prison. They're stripped, they're beaten, and severely flogged and left in stocks. And we read in Acts how those two men sat in the dark, in agony, bleeding and in urgent need of medical attention, but none came.
1: It's the sort of situation that raises the the deep, hard questions of life in a believer's mind. Uh, had God let them down? Uh, was their calling a, a delusion? Uh, was God good and caring, or did he just treat his servants like impersonal resources? And I'm sure the other prisoners sneered, you know, where is your God now? Um, but Acts records how Paul and Silas reacted, and at first sight it makes no sense. The two of them find something rising deep from within their hearts, a sense of gratitude, and so, amazingly, they start to sing. Uh, it's an astonishing moment. Some songs in Scripture are, are easy to understand. You know, you think of Miriam banging her tambourine as she sings the song of Moses on the shores of the Red Sea, or I uh, think of the sad song uh, sung by the exiles uh, as they sit by the rivers of Babylon. But a song of praise in the darkest hour of defeat? It, it seems to make no sense. It reminds me of the hymn sung by the Lord himself just before he left the upper room. That hymn would have been the Hallel, Psalm 118. Four times, in four verses, the song says, Give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. And so the song that Paul and Silas sing reveals the mind of Christ, I think.
0: Acts then tells us how an earthquake hits the city, and it causes all the prison doors to fly open, but remarkably none of the prisoners leave. And the jailer who'd been on the verge of committing suicide, well, he gets wonderfully saved. And he and his family become the founding members of the church at Philippi. And so now, years later, the Philippian jailer and his family are sitting in church. And they
1: listen to a letter written by Paul. Once again, Paul is in prison. He's chained every hour of every day to a member of the imperial guard in the city of Rome. I, I came across a little insight into Paul's last days in Rome when I was reading Second Timothy chapter 1. Uh, Paul writes there about his situation. Um, He says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Everyone in Asia deserted him. Everyone. It was a, a disastrous setback for the apostle. But he goes on to talk about a man called Onesiphorus. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Now, if I'm reading that text correctly it would seem that the church at Rome had so completely abandoned Paul that no one even knew where he was. The great apostle Paul, to whom every Christian believer owes so much, had been so forgotten that a stranger like Onesiphorus had to search all over Rome to find the right dungeon. If ever there was an excuse for a man to fall into black depression, we have it here. What was the point of the whole thing? All his efforts, his hardships, tireless work. Surely the whole thing was a waste of time. Now, we don't quite know at what stage in his Roman imprisonment Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians, but the warning signs of his future are clear to see in chapter 1. But the Philippian jailer didn't hear a letter of complaint. I'm fairly sure as he listened to this uh, letter, which is full of inexpressible joy, uh, he once again heard the sound of singing. Even in
0: the darkest of circumstances, the Apostle Paul surprises us with his joy. Yeah, and that thought is is super relevant for young adults today because many of us do struggle with mental health issues. Uh, maybe we get depressed or, or anxious, and Philippians talks a great deal about the mind, doesn't it, Jim? It does. Preachers often
1: leap straight into the last chapter, chapter four, uh, because it deals explicitly with anxiety and other mental issues. But the discussion we're about to have will open up, I, I hope, a much deeper analysis of mental health once we get our heads around the big idea of the book.
0: And we get a clue about the big idea of the book in the very first words of greeting. In nearly all his other letters, Paul introduces himself as an apostle. But Philippians starts like this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. So he takes this really humble position as a simple servant, while he gives the readers their impressive job titles as elders and deacons. Yeah, as you say, that's an important clue. Uh, If one of our listeners wrote a letter to
1: their parents and they began, from an impoverished student to his inordinately wealthy mom and dad, uh, you might get a clue (laughs) about the main idea behind the letter.
0: When you preach the book, Jim, I know you don't move methodically through the text starting in chapter one. You actually begin with the most famous section in the book, which is found at the start of chapter two. I'm just going to read those verses now. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why, Jim, are these famous verses at the very heart of the letter? Well, to explain that, allow me to set them beside another
1: short passage in Scripture. I'm going to quote two verses from the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. We're breaking into the middle of what's been called the Song of the Fallen King. And the two verses I'm going to read give an insight into the king's secret ambition, insight into his inner motivation, if you like. Isaiah says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now, when you set those two passages beside each other, you get this really interesting insight into what we might call the trajectory of life. (laughs) In the 1990s, a whole slew of films came out that involved the office of the President of the United States. I mean, some of them were romantic comedies, others were cynical political thrillers. But in most of them, there is a moment when the presidential candidate enters the Oval Office for the first time He, as almost always a he, is accompanied by his wife. And the new president, you know, runs his his hand along the polished mahogany of the most famous desk in the world. Outside, the crowds are chanting his name, sharing in his success. The adoring wife rests her head briefly on the president's shoulder and sighs. Do you remember our first political campaign? Tramping the streets of some rain-soaked suburb, eating cold pizza at midnight. All the painful grind of achieving political success. But from that inauspicious start, there began this great journey, an election to the office of governor in some remote province, then a seat in Congress. And so the rise to power goes on and on through the primaries until eventually the road to the White House opens up before them.
0: I'm fairly, you sound like you're a script writer on some of these shows, Jim. (laughs) The prose is absolutely striking.
1: (laughs) Uh, well, it is a very familiar storyline, isn't it? You know, uh, you know. Uh, to take a <laughs> an even more childish example, when when we first encounter Cinderella, uh, she's scrubbing floors and washing dishes. But then, you know, pumpkins start to turn into carriages, and eventually, Cinderella becomes a princess and marries Prince Charming. Now, in order to get my point here, I'd like you to imagine that you had to draw a graph, okay? A graph for the president and the princess. What sort of diagram? would you chart to describe the trajectory of their lives? Well, if I was given a pen and paper, I would draw a graph which starts off in the bottom left-hand corner of the page and then rises with the occasional wobble to a triumphant height in the right-hand corner of the page.
0: Yeah, and I, I reckon that many of our daydreams follow that kind of trajectory. So maybe we are kind of pursuing a career in the world of business uh, and we lie in bed at night and dream about becoming a manager, and then a director, and then maybe even CEO. Or maybe we have political ambitions. Uh, We want to become an MP and then steadily rise through the ranks to become uh, a minister of state, or maybe even a minister of the cabinet, maybe even prime minister. Or I'm sure for many of us, uh, we might be students and we're kind of lying in our university halls and uh, we don't have a a lot of money even to buy uh, a meal. So we, we find as many free school meals, student meals as we can. And daydream about a future when we roll up to the best school in the town in a nice car and pick up our beautiful, talented children. And in every case, the graph of our life is running from this bottom left corner of your chart, Jim, to the top right. It's this relentless ascent. But now let's think about the passage that you just read from Philippians 2
1: and repeat the little experiment I mentioned when we were talking about presidents and princesses. So, you have a blank sheet of paper and a pen. Now, think again over the passage we read and draw a graph of the Lord's life. It certainly isn't a straight line from bottom left to top right, is it? Uh, I really wish we could have a drum roll at this point, Ollie, uh, because we've just come to the big idea of Philippians. Perhaps the most fundamental principle of the Christian life You go down so that God can raise you up. The path to glory is not a straight line ascent. It is a downward path, which then is raised up to unimaginable heights. So in crude terms, your diagram would look something like a hockey stick, wouldn't it? First it travels lower and lower and lower, and then there is the amazing turnaround which shoots up to the heights of glory. And at the very lowest point in the graph, we come to death. For Christ, it was the humiliating death of crucifixion but unless Christ returns we will all die. So the astonishing idea here is that while we're alive in this earth, the trajectory of our lives will be downward. We become more and more of a servant as each month goes on. And by walking that path of humility and obedient servanthood, we place ourselves in the position where God can raise us up to unimaginable heights, where we will reign with Christ forever and ever. And that is the big revolutionary idea which lies at the heart of Philippians. In the kingdoms of this world, Greatness is measured by the number of people who serve you. So the President of the United States is great because hundreds of thousands of people serve him every day. But in the kingdom of God, greatness is measured by the number of people you serve. So the greater a servant you are, the greater you are in the kingdom. In God's story, you go down to go up. Now, it's not that you just go down and down, okay? Paul's point is that God can only raise someone up. He can only elevate them to a position of honour if they have first shown the humility to serve others. God can never raise up the proud who lorded over others. He can only honour the humble,
0: the the, the servant-hearted. In Luke 14, the Lord Jesus tells a story about someone who'd been invited to a feast, and they choose the best seat at the table. But then they have to go through the humiliation of being demoted to a lesser position because someone more distinguished arrives. It is best, says Jesus, to choose the lowest place, so that the host will promote you to a position of greater honor. That actually happened to me once, olly <laughs> Literally. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was a young executive, and
1: I arrived early for a, a meeting in, in a boardroom in, in Atlanta, actually. Uh, and I looked around the table, and I spied the seat that would give me the most commanding position. You know, then, unfortunately, when everyone else arrived, I was told that I was sitting in the chairman's seat. So I had to endure the humiliation of gathering up all my papers and moving to a seat at the bottom of the table. So the the Lord's parable is a perfect illustration of Paul's big idea. In life, a great deal of selfish ambition and the mistreatment of others comes because we think that we need to grab hold of glory and honour for ourselves. But Christ teaches us that the smart way to live is to follow the path of humble servanthood because then God can raise us
0: up to a position of honour. In Philippians, Paul colours his big idea by taking three examples of real people who adopted that strategy. So he talks first about Timothy and gives him a lot of honor. I have no one else like him, he says, because everyone else looks out for their own interests rather than the interests of others. And then Paul talks about another man called Epaphroditus. He was another servant who nearly died in his efforts to serve the cause of the gospel. Yeah, Paul explicitly tells us to honor
1: people like Epaphroditus and Timothy. And his instruction is such a rebuke uh, to the um, celebrity pastor culture that's common today. You, you, you can tell a great deal about a church by looking at the people it honours. If a church makes much of the fashionable, the photogenic, and the charming, then you can know that the members of that church really value fashion, image, and charm. But if a church honours the quiet, steadfast servants who
0: work humbly, then you find a church with Christ-like values. The main example Paul gives us of this pattern of living is from his own life. Most of chapter 3 is taken up with Paul using his own life as an example of the template Christ laid down in chapter 2. He starts off with all the natural gifts and inherited blessings of being a well-regarded Pharisee, and then he lists out all his theological qualifications. But then he reaches rock bottom when he says he lost all that. He lost everything. In fact, he lost his place in society, his career, his reputation. But by humbling himself in that way, God actually raised him up and gave him much better blessings. He gave him righteousness through faith. He gave him the privilege of knowing Christ. And so Paul's life is shaped like that hockey stick you mentioned earlier, Jim. Of course, the whole scheme only makes
1: sense if death isn't the end. And this is the point point Paul makes at the end of chapter 3. If death is the end, if this world is all there is, then Paul's hockey stick trajectory is literally mad. If death is the end, then grab everything you can while you're alive. Uh, make your stomach your God, Paul says. But if the trajectory of my life stretches out into eternity, then I will make choices that are for
0: my long-term benefit, benefits that will last for all eternity. See, the big idea of Philippians is described in chapters two and three. They form the core of the book, if you like, and we follow the pathway of Christ, the perfect servant. We jettison selfish ambition, we serve the interests of others rather than our own interests, we value others more highly than we value ourselves, and we walk this strange path because we know that only then can God honor us in his kingdom. To go back to the Lord's parable, we take the worst seed in the house knowing that the host will move us to a more honorable position. In God's kingdom, we go down so that God can raise us up.
1: Uh, It's such a counter-cultural idea. I mean, just think about social media for a moment. All those platforms exist, essentially, to allow us to engineer our own reputations. We try to build ourselves up. And Philippians contradicts all that way of thinking. It proposes a different way to think about life, to follow the pathway
0: of Christ, the perfect servant. I guess someone might respond to this, Jim, by wondering, is it selfish then to take the lowest position if we know that in doing so we're going to be raised up?
1: Well, remember that the elevated position in God's kingdom isn't, um you know, an act of self-aggrandizement. It's the very opposite of that. You want uh, a position within God's kingdom according to God's values. So it is a position where you have the opportunity to serve more people, where you have greater responsibility for the welfare of others. Uh, so it's not selfish ambition. Uh, there is a godly ambition, and uh, Scripture says that's a good
0: thing. But it is, of course, uh, to to have the opportunity to serve. Brilliant. That's really helpful and and clarifying. So we've kind of considered the the, the main thoughts in in chapters two and three. Then uh, what about chapters one and four? Well, I think those outer chapters help us understand how to implement the big idea, how to realize the big
1: idea in, in the practical rhythms of life. So in chapter one, Paul is in a dire situation. I mean, he's in a dungeon chained 24 hours a day to a guard. He's facing certain execution. All his Christian family have abandoned him and worse, some of them are using his imprisonment to grab power and reputation for themselves. Now, if Paul had been an ambitious, selfish man, he would have been frustrated and depressed by his circumstances. But Paul saw himself as a servant of the gospel, and so he interpreted his life in the context of this spread of the gospel, and he could see that, in fact, his imprisonment had produced real advantages for the Christian church, and that made him happy, genuinely happy. And he was also made happy by the thought that one day he would depart to be with Christ. He viewed the trajectory of his life in its eternal context. So we can see from chapter one how the book's big idea is an antidote to the narcissism of our present day.
0: And then in chapter four, we get all the practical teaching about mental health. He talks about conflict, relationship breakdown and anxiety, and the risks of feeling discontented. How can the big idea of the book help people who struggle with these issues? Well, the obvious link here is with the word
1: mind. You know, in the opening of his grand thesis in chapter two, Paul says, "Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus." So, part of sanctification is to develop the mind of Christ within our own heads, so that we think as He thinks, we interpret life's events as He interpreted them. I mean, a good contrast, I think, comes from, I think, it's Psalm seventy-three, which was written by a man called Asaph. And some horrible circumstance had arisen in Asaf's life. And he admits that for a while he gave in to self-pity and bitterness. And he ended up, he says, reacting like a beast in the field. And I think if we're being honest, we often think like Asaf. If we have a worldly mindset, then we expect life to uh, be a wonderful ascent. You know, this escalator that carries us to ever greater status and satisfaction. So when the escalator breaks down, when life gets nasty and difficult we can end up wallowing in self-pity or bitterness. But if we have the mindset of Christ Jesus, then we know that we go down so that God can raise us up. So let's put chapter 1 and chapter 4 together. Some people are imprisoned inside a troubled mind. They might not be in a physical dungeon like Paul, but they can feel chained to a brain that constrains their freedom to live life to the full. They might be tempted to stare enviously out of the prison bars at others who seem to sail through life without a care in the world. But the mind of Christ can see that God's greatest work can be done in prison houses. Just think of the millions of believers who have been blessed by the letters written by Paul while he was in prison. So even those who live in a mental prison can live a life of quiet service. They can consider the interests of others, and they can know that one day they will be brought home and the deprivations of mental struggles will be consigned to the past. So even in the darkness of a troubled mind, there will still be the sound
0: of singing. And so we're done for today. Jim, Paul has called us to follow the downward pathway of Christ the servant so that God can raise us up. As we close, Jim, I want to mention an exciting event coming up on the 30th of October at 7pm at Crescent Church. We're gonna be hosting an equip live event And we'd love to see as many listeners as possible come along uh, and bring their friends. The event's not going to be ticketed, so just show up and we're going to be releasing more information about that on our Instagram uh, in the coming days. So keep an eye out for that. And we look forward to seeing you there.